Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with International Justice Mission. Thank you to Philip Calvert and his team for the incredible work they're doing. You may be asking yourself why. Why is Collisions YYC partnering with IJM? Well, because I believe we can end slavery in our lifetime, and I want to use my platform to be part of that mission. For many of you, hearing that statement may be a rallying cry. For the rest of you, it may be a moment of, wait, what? Slavery? Is that even a thing I should be worrying about? For me, up to six months ago, it was the second. I did not even understand the problem. After a chance meeting with Philip Calvert, National Director of Development for IGM Canada, my eyes were open to the reality that poor people face the world over, a reality of violence that stops them from ever moving forward in their life. At first, this made me uncomfortable. Then it made me downright mad. And then it gave me hope. It is the support of groups like IGM that will allow us to reach the goal of ending slavery in our lifetime and give hope to people who may have none. This is not a conversation that we want to have. It's a conversation that we must have. Please join me in supporting this incredible organization by visiting and donating to their cause at www.igm.ca. This is a fight we all need to take on, and we need to take it on today. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to Miss Enu George. How are you, Enu? I'm doing great, thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. And as 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 my, as my audience may know, over the past month we have um, been involved and had a, we announced earlier December a partnership with International Justice Mission. A little bit of our own way of bringing to light something that, again, I'll be candid as I've as I've said before, I this was not on my radar more than not even a year ago. So to talk about things like slavery, to talk about online sexual exploitation of children, to talk about just the level of violence that exists in our world that we don't always see because we live in a very privileged, you know, North American, or certainly in this case, Canadian um, world. So with that, I would like to turn it over to you, Anu, to maybe give us a little bit of, you know, your, how would you explain international justice mission and the, and the work you do? And let's open the conversation from there. Absolutely. Um, international justice mission is the, the world's largest anti-human trafficking organization. We are, we have 24 field offices and we are present in 14 countries. The current reality in which we work is that um, people who are poor face the daily threat of violence. Uh, meanwhile, criminals expect no consequences because justice systems do not effectively enforce laws. And IGM's work has been to strengthen justice systems to enforce the law which deters criminals and protects people from violence. We have been able to impact this change um, uh, in a pretty significant manner, and I'm really excited to get into the weeds with you about it. So interesting. And this organization has been around since 1997, and you've been involved, you've been with the organization for 10, 10 years yeah, plus? for more than a decade, yeah. And in the last two years you've been in this, in the CEO position mm -hmm. before being in the CEO position, you're in Canada now, yeah. just to give everybody context, mm -hmm. just to give context. Um, and I think, I think you just said it, you said 14 countries. Uh, how does it break out? Is the organization like, is it a global organization that has more like field offices or does each country run a little bit differently based on the need that's located in that, in that yeah, country? So we, we have field offices around the world, which, and the way okay. we specifically intervene is how we can impact the local justice system. Uh, and we partner with the um, you know criminal justice system in respective countries. So if it's in Philippines, we are working in addressing OSEC, which is online sexual exploitation of children. 
if it's in um, you know South Asia, the work extends to sex trafficking of minors, for sex trafficking of minors, uh, labor trafficking, which is like a uh, you know multi billion dollar industry in itself, and the same applies for different parts of the world where uh, children, young families. Families for generations have been trapped under the throes of slavery so that they can feed into an endless supply chain where the demand originates from around the world. Um, so my work when I was in South Asia primarily was being the tip of the spear, if you can call that, being on the front lines, mm. uh, partnering with the government, identifying, rescuing, rehabilitating, um, ensuring that the perpetrators are put behind bars, that deterrence is in place. And... Focusing in, um, in an intervention in a way that the local justice system does not need intervention of organizations like ours. So the success meter for IJM has been how soon can we go in and get out of a country office? Uh, how much time is it going to take for us to make sure that um, um, our engagement leads to a long-term investment? And the country is able to handle and tackle problems. The local justice system is able to tackle problems. Um, yeah. That's and you 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 stole one of my one of my questions from later in the show that I was hoping to ask, but I was reading through yeah. um, your 2020 year in review and I came across a reference to Chiang Mai, Thailand, yeah. which is a part of like I would say is one of my top favorite places yeah. in the world to go as a, as a traveler as a tourist yeah. when you often don't see what's going on behind the the wall or the behind the the, the layer of the reality of going there as an outsider. Yeah. But 20 years and you worked yourself out of a job, yeah. I, and I think I, we can say that very like in in a celebratory yeah. way. So it took. 20 years, but what I've learned about IGM, what I found, which I really love this, you are tackling all aspects of this problem from pardon the expression, perpetrating the environment to catch people doing the thing right up to helping the country stabilize its justice system to be able to then punish the people that need to be punished. And to me, that's no easy task to take that on because you're dealing with everything from street level criminals to the corrupt justice system. Absolutely. And and many people are skeptical, you know, about whether it's possible to change a dysfunctional justice system or think that even if it is possible, it would take far too long, be too expensive or result in way too small a change for it to be worthwhile. The example that you gave is great, but we have been able to see that as we get into, uh, you know, this new model, we know that there is a solution to addressing this problem. The time taken reduces. IGM's work has shown that it's not just possible to eminently practical to improve a justice system's uh, effectiveness against a violent uh, crime in a in, in variety of contexts. Say, for example, uh, our three programs in the Philippines each profoundly improve the ability of police, prosecutors, courts, and aftercare workers to providers to combat the commercial sexual exploitation of children and support survivors. And we can, we can say now with facts, with evidence that in the Philippines, uh, the crime has declined substantially. IGM measured uh, the decline ranging from 75% to 86% in targeted areas. And same thing in Guatemala, in Cambodia, and uh, in, in Uganda. And we, we, I mean, I, I, people often say, I know 
you talk about being able to end this problem by 2030, that you're going to be able to rescue millions and protect half a billion. Um, you know, it, it seems like an incredible wish. And I'm like, it is factual. It is backed by evidence. We have seen it work. We have this vaccine, for lack of better words. All we need to do is implement so what is it about IGM's theory of, you know, theory of change? Like, what is a bit of the secret sauce that allows you to, because you're right, from the outside, it sounds good and end slavery in our lifetime. It's something that really resonated for me. One, not even realizing that that was something I should be focusing yeah. on, but it did feel like I'm a marketer. So it felt a little bit like a rallying cry, but I didn't really know if it was real. Yeah. I'm just being super vulnerable <laughs> right now to share that with you. See, um, in one sentence, we strengthen justice systems to enforce the law foundational. And that deters criminals and protects people from violence. If I were to break it down into core elements, um, strengthening public justice system, justice systems must and can be strengthened to justly enforce laws and serve survivors. The uh, argument is that, you know, there's an international consensus that states must hold perpetrator accountable and investments in rule of law leads to safer communities, especially in societies where impunity is normative. There is inaction. Despite clear consensus on the need to eliminate violence, a holistic system-focused response has not been mapped. It has not been prioritized. Justice system reform is complex and it's multi-layered, but this should not paralyze us. We should take encouragement from just how the complex public health system organized around a comprehensive global response in the fight against HIV, AIDS. I mean, ultimately saving lives and transforming cultural views. There is proof that improvement is possible. IGN's experience is supported by external examples from around the world of justice system reform leading to safer communities. Public justice systems, the police, prosecutors, judges, and social service providers can be improved to better enforce law. Again, then to enforce the law, I mean, our theory of change hinges on the just enforcement of just laws by the authorities with uh, unique power to serve survivors and deliver justice. Here, it is important to remember that how laws are enforced matters greatly. Victims must be treated with trauma sensitivity. Police must be visible and trusted. Laws must be just and communities must be engaged. Uh, and the next phase, I, I don't know if you want me to break it down further, but I'm happy to. <laughs> no, I love that. And it, it's, it sets a picture in place that I think is, is easier to understand when you look at it and go, okay, if I look at these as these areas in the world that deal with, uh, they do not have the same level of protections. They do not have that feeling of safety and security that I have potentially living here in North America, arguably as a white male, I will throw that, I will put a caveat <laughs> on that. So you're in Canada. Yeah. So I'm pivoting back a little bit to really understand the global perspective around this problem. When if I think of South Asia, I think of some of the places that, that you mentioned, there's a level of poverty that exists. And then I understand the justice system is not there to support that certain group of individuals. And then perpetrators feel that they will do not need to ever suffer consequences. Mm -hmm. Bring us back to Canada. So what's the fit when we don't have that as visibly obvious as some of those other parts of the world? So we... To, to bring this in perspective, I need to give you a few reference points. Um, okay, thank you. 40.3 million people are in slavery. I love that to say, you know, these are people who not only fall outside the protection of law. These are people who are vulnerable to a point where the fear of facing anyone from the criminal justice system lies with the victim and not with the perpetrator. 
Now, that is not a reality in North America. If you call 911, you know someone is going to come. You're not going to be uh, afraid of calling for help. Now, the situation where we work in are the vulnerable who have been broken, especially when I'm talking about, you know, forced prostitution of minors. These girls have been broken down by people in uniforms. So can you imagine what it would be like for us not just to reach them, identify where they are, but also to find a way to muster their courage so that they are able to bravely talk about what they experienced and and not side with the perpetrator who would, would not be afraid of the consequences because he knows that the victim will not have the courage to share the truth. Now, this is the stark difference, I would say. So when, when we're sitting here, and I can say I've been here two years, uh, there are some things that I might have taken for granted while I was here. It's like, yeah, I mean, all I need to do is make a phone call. And then I have to brace myself back to the reality in which uh, the poor and the oppressed live. 40.3 million, uh, vast majority of the population which falls outside the protection of law, waiting to be exploited by those who are benefiting from a multi-billion dollar business. You know, this is a parallel economy which is getting consistently fed by the poor and the uh, oppressed. I mean, Canadians I, is the only country in the world where 93% of the population cares about where their goods come from. And to know that there exists an entire population of people serving masters like this, who are making sure that we get whatever we demand whenever we want it. One rescue that I led, I mean, there were 150 plus kids. They were working in a basement. They've never seen the light of day. When I'm saying they've never seen the light of day to a point where the pupils were the color of gray, not even gray, white. And they were making buckles for handbags and for lingerie, things that were getting exported. Simple choices that we make in this country, simple things that we have taken for granted. On one side, it's business. On the other side, who's paying for the, who's paying the price that you're not paying? When you think of that from a supply chain perspective, is, I guess, it feels like we're on a path to become better educated and become more aware, as you said, as consumers of understanding where things come from. But this feels not only like a, I understand the justice system part, but this is a little bit of the follow the money type yeah. of situation where we have to understand the supply and demand and all the supply chain. And we talk about, you know, ESG and, you know, making sure we have a sustainable supply chain. Is that just, are we moving down a path where we're becoming more aware, more accountable and more willing to make decisions differently than even we were five years ago uh, on this specific side? I would like to think so, especially the results of this survey was so encouraging, but that doesn't mean that it has impacted um, you know, okay. it doesn't mean that we have become part of the solution. We are still very much part of the problem. We still are yet to pass legislation which will impact um, the, uh, the those who are trapped in slavery. We are still yet okay. to make conscious consumer decisions that will guarantee that we don't have to be leading rescue operations where women are getting raped on a daily basis, children are exploited on a daily basis. We still are not in a space where online sexual exploitation of children, several Canadians were arrested because they were sourcing um, explicit content for $5 or less. And, and 
so so awareness is one thing but acting on that is an entirely different thing political will is an important thing um it's not just consumers consumers are lost they they care about it they want to buy the right kind of products but you're seeing in news pretty much every day that the source that you purchase from is a result of you know some abuse some exploitation somewhere pretty much everything seems to be coming from that space and there is not and and and, and because of competition it makes it impossible for an ethical business to even thrive um because there is way too much to you know tackle on the other front so businesses need to be able to you know find we need motivation we need there to be some sort of a will which is backed by the government being interested in encouraging businesses to go the ethical way is your role in, in as as the CEO specifically based in Canada? Are you dealing or do you have constant conversations with some of the larger retail players? Like, is this? I'm just thinking about trying to understand. I, you're in South Asia when you're there, where there's certainly a, the problem is is visible and more and more prevalent in terms of the number of people enslaved and everything that goes with yeah. that. But in Canada, where it's different, I'm just curious of the role that your organization plays here. And from a business to business perspective, is that a big part of the conversations you're having is to get that on the radar of these companies? Absolutely. And we've had a few organizations reach out to us. And Walmart is very interested and has uh, literally invested in Thai to ensure that, you know, the shrimp that is getting exported uh, is uh, free of slavery. So we have uh, dedicated uh, staff trying to tackle that problem. There are so many corporations that can you know take a big leap in understanding where and how the supply chain can get impacted so yeah there are some uh, who have been part of the conversation but in an ideal world there could be more uh, who can be invested and interested in tackling a problem like this like the financial aspect of it um, we have seen that there are financial institutions that were um, concerned about how you know, they um, unwittingly were part of the problem. Uh, and, you know... In terms of facilitating these transactions. And they, they've been proactive in addressing, um, you know, those problems in, in Australia. We're hoping to see that in Canada too. As I listen to you talk, and I think it's maybe, this is where I see it really tying in well with, with the majority of conversations I have, which are with startups and scale-ups and growth companies that are always looking to tackle problems with creative ways, where I hear your role and every day, you, the level of creativity that you have to have as an organization to understand how do we get at this? What is the real root of it? Just thinking about your own journey as into the CEO role, do you consider yourself... A, in a way, a, a, a social entrepreneur in, in, in a sense of finding creative ways to solve these problems? Because they're not, this is not easy. These are not easy things to fix in any stretch of the imagination. Um, I don't know what you want to call it. I mean, I, they say necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, I, was, <laughs> I was 15. They do say that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, just, I was 15 when, um, you know, I, I was like, I need to make money so that I can perform street theater and build awareness on uh, addressing violence or getting children, slum children, excited about education. I think that's where the need to do things a little differently started. And um, soon after, you know, when I had my first episode with violence myself, I realized it put things in a certain perspective for me. Um, you know, for the longest time, I was thinking um, educating the population was gonna rid the world of poverty. Uh, but 
Every time I did that, the obstacle that came between me and the benefactor of my services was violence. Um, so losing pretty much everything that I had allowed me to look at the theory of change that IJM was leading with very differently. I think uh, the reason that I stuck, you know, I mean, there was no turning back once I got an opportunity to serve with IJM because I started as a legal director. My job was to ensure that the perpetrators were, uh, uh, you know, behind bars, making sure that the detriment was in place because the power of perception is just incredible. Uh, from the perpetrator's perspective, from those around the perpetrator, from the, um, you know, from the uh, moving pieces of the criminal justice uh, system perspective, the power of perception is just incredible. However, there came a point where we had to get creative. You know, we were doing this, we were making a ton of impact, but how do we leverage that? So I had the opportunity to lead a partnerships program. Uh, this was a decade ago. And the result of that was uh, required a bit of uh, creativity for sure. How do we take this excellent model of identifying, rescuing, rehabilitating, and strengthening the public justice system? How do we take that and disperse that across a country and then eventually across the world? Um, so it just, you know, by the sheer number, you know, as far as impact is concerned, be it rescues, be the kind of trainings, you know, we were training people in thousands, um, a problem where you know, judges would, if we go and present a case, the judges would throw the file across saying it's a useless case. He took a loan, he has to repay, obviously they'll make him work, kind of a situation to where the uh, uh, accused would say, hey, okay, I'm guilty, where do I pay the fine? And all he needs to do is pay five to $10 fine to get away from generational slavery. He would have kept slaves for three to four generations, but he could get away with $10 fine. To move, you know, a justice system, which was unresponsive from there, to now if the perpetrator dares to say, okay, I'm guilty, where do I pay the fine? The judge would be like, is that so? 11 years triggers imprisonment. Are you willing to take it? So, We've been able to see that shift through partnerships. And now around the world, IGM has been able to impact um, to a, in a way that, you know, we've been able to rewrite our mission statement. So I think at every turn of the way, we've had to be creative. We've had to be entrepreneurial. We've had to, uh, you know, be a step ahead. Like uh, giving you way too many examples, but I'll stop with this one. Um, when we realized that, forced minors were getting trafficked on a regular basis. We were able to bring down the percentage of, you know, how easily it was to access minors for sex. But immediately the perpetrators got creative. They shifted to online. They moved from, you know, so there is no pausing. There is no, like I told you, multi-billion dollar business. The stakes are way too high for them to stop being creative, for them not to be together. So what, what are the best bets we have to band together, to be that organization which is connecting with pretty much everyone and become this group of good guys who want to stop, you know, the ones who are trying to benefit from the poor and the oppressed. I'll stop now. What? No, I love it. It gives lots of context and certainly some depth to it. I'm curious, just the trajectory of the organization, even over since 97, but over the last kind of 20 years, has it been a steady growth curve in terms of your of IGM 
as an organization, because it's interesting to put it into into corporate context of you've grown, you've ex- you've grown, you've expanded globally. Like these are things that that a lot of corporations struggle to do success- successfully, and yet you guys have been able to do that. Like, did it did it did it come in bursts and waves in terms of the growth, or has it been a pretty steady trajectory since the onset? It has been. Uh, I would I would say steady, but then after a certain point, I think we're getting closer to the tipping point. Uh, so okay. it, so when you reach, when you get closer to the tipping point, it just doubles. You can see how the impact is doubling and tripling to a point where it just becomes, you know, this unstoppable, <laughs> if there is a way to. Um, but we do have data which clearly points us to where the end state is going to be. And from where I sit, it's looking pretty good. No, and I appreciate you putting some context that it's not just a, a lofty goal to get people. Oh, no. It's not just a lofty North Star. It's a reality. Yeah, mm-hmm. and again, like between 2006 to 2010, in uh, Cebu alone, Philippines, we were we saw the commercial sex industry drop by 79%. Manila uh, in Philippines, the availability of minors, commercial sexual uh, exploitation industry, again, 75% drop in seven years. The other one was four years, seven years. Uh, Pampanga, Four years, 85% reduction of the crime in less than four years. And in Cambodia, 73% less in less than two years. So you can kind of see how a similar model, once you get close to a space where you can show and tell literally, you know, our program to uh, protect widows in Uganda. There also we've been seeing, it took some time for us to, you know, we, we can measure steady growth, but then once it started rolling, there was no stopping it. So there is an, back to the tipping point concept, there is an exponential point yes. where all of a sudden it starts to grow on itself. Curious, you made reference quite a bit, 40.3 million. And is this primarily, is it, is gender, how much does gender play a factor oh, here? Big. Is this more perpetrate? Yeah, I'm assuming yes, but I wanted to clarify. I don't ever want to make it. Yeah, so the minute, the minute I say the, um, you know, those who fall outside the protection of a law, that every time I say vulnerable, women and children naturally form a big part of the group that we rescue. And, and, and again, globally, regardless of where we are working in, we also find that, um, you know, those who are coming from, um, um, you know, either traditional caste system or that, that from a tribe, uh, they're usually, I don't know how to call that, in those, the indigenous people are, are okay. usually uh, also, you know, are extremely vulnerable uh, for crimes like this. Regardless of where you are, whether whether you are in you know South Asia or whether you are somewhere in Africa, it just makes you maybe a step more vulnerable than others. So women, children, so much, um, so many are you know impacted by this. Do you see any type of trends? And again, I'm just showing my ignorance. I live in North America. I live in corporate North America. Conversations around diversity and inclusion, you know, especially over the last two to three, two to four years, it's been much more prevalent as we look to diversify and ensure that we're doing mm-hmm. that deliberately, not not haphazardly. But the rest of the world is on sometimes a very different pace. And I've had conversations with guests on the show. They talked about, it's like, well, yeah, but that's a Canadian conversation. Mm-hmm. Other parts of the world, that's not the conversation that's happening. Yeah. I'm curious how much that plays a part into the work that you do and the ability to make impact when maybe those conversations aren't top of mind like they, like they are here. Or, I know, and they can be more so, but we're doing better. We're, we're doing better. <laughs> yeah. So when you say diversity and inclusion, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take two parts of that conversation from the organization's perspective. Yeah. And from the survivor's perspective, um, you know, okay. so 
from the organization's perspective, I'm so impressed by just how, um, what is the, I'm, I'm not as articulate as, as I should be because English is not my mother tongue, but so much of an intentionality. And I, I would also say okay. implementation, like the most incredible leaders who are leading incredibly challenging projects are women. And um, especially where I come from, uh, South Asia, it is, it is kind of a big deal. You know, we are not trusted with uh, a lot of things in a lot of places. I mean, even to walk into a government office, you would see that you're surrounded by men and you're in a, in a space where uh, you're consistently and always a minority. So uh, organizationally, I think we've been so proactive and conscious about being um, uh, intentional in how we tackle that. Uh, but also when it comes to our survivors, I take great delight in seeing just how, um, you know, in, impressed and impressive it is to see women take leadership. Um, whenever we have survivors come together, it is consistently being, being women who have taken the front row and led with confidence and brought others, banded them together be it in advocating for the rights of others. So I often say this, and it's often quoted, uh, whenever we rescue a woman, uh, her freedom is infectious. She wants to make sure that everyone else gets access to that. She wants to make sure that it's not just her child that ends up growing in freedom, but every other children um, are born in freedom and never have to deal with um, you know, the reality of captivity. Um, so, so many survival leaders have, um, have significantly contributed back to the system of leading change. So, I've got survival women leaders who are leading rescue operations. I've got them standing for elections, winning in those elections, supporting members within their community who have been once victims of slavery, making them stand and win elections and be uh, present in places where their voices need to be elevated and heard. And I, it's just amazing. It's amazing how they are being intentional about including everyone for this fight against violence. Um, and, and like I mentioned, indigenous communities um, often you know, face the brunt of not being able to be fully present or have a seat at the table. Uh, I one of the survivors, there are so many stories, but this one is my personal favorite. Um, not only did he escape from a life of, uh, you know, perpetual slavery, he then got trained to be a lawyer. He now uh, not only leads rescue operations, he fights their cases. It's, the, it's just, it's amazing. Like, in, in a regular scenario, he would be seen as, well, you don't deserve to be here because... You know, because of either your caste or because of uh, mm-hmm. your identity and whatnot. So, yeah, I hope I've answered your question. Does that does that translate directly not only to, that's a great story to tell outwardly, but I imagine for other victims of slavery that are at that transition from realizing that they, they have rights and that they can get out of, I can only imagine that that's a real example that resonates more than anything I could say. You know what I mean? From the perspective of, well, you don't know what it's like. Yes, I do. And this is me yeah. now. I would have never guessed. It's like the perfect theme for a Hollywood movie, right? You know what I mean? Like that, it fits perfect. I can only imagine it's inspirational oh. in the same way. All of us get inspired by someone doing what we never even dreamt. We oh, could it's just beautiful. I mean, especially victims of uh, forced prostitution. They, uh, uh, oh my 
gosh. It's just these girls, they come back and they're like, don't worry, I've been there. Hold my hands. Let me take you out. Because they're afraid. They're afraid that their master is going to hunt them down and, you know, put them back in that. Which is part, is unfortunately part of the, the mental exactly. model that's created to the prison without exactly. walls. <laughs> exactly. And and it's amazing. And, and this makes a huge difference for them to see a survivor. Tell them it is okay. You don't have to be, yeah. And I get goosebumps every time I share that story. But what these incredible people uh, are now leading the change, not just locally but globally. Um, you should listen to some of these survivors talk. My goodness. Well, I, you're you're glowing right now. I have the privilege. I can see you on the other side of the screen for my audience. It's coming through loud and clear. Something you've made reference to a couple of times and I want to just get clarity on what it is. When you say leading a rescue operation, is that as dramatic and as, as, as blown out as it sounds? Because this has like people kicking down doors and like there's an image that comes into my mind that probably was given to me by Hollywood somewhere or watching, <laughs> watching Vice or the news. But when you say it like that, because you guys, you, you as an organization operate as close to the front lines as you can get right through to, like you said, changing legislation at a government level. Is that literally, do you mean kicking down doors? Like, is that what we're talking about when you say? Yes, yeah, so, what I want you to be, um, what I want to be very clear about is we do this in partnership with the government. This is not okay, us being heroes. We we okay. do not Thank want you. to be, um, you know, this is, this is through and through uh, ensuring that they get to do what they should be doing. And yes, it does involve a combination of all of this that you described. And it's nothing like Hollywood movies because in Hollywood movies, it's perfect. You know, you time it perfectly, yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. there perfectly. No, uh, that is far from the reality. There are tip-off, there are dangers on the way. We've been attacked, we've been threatened, and it's it's all of that. Uh, you don't get to take a shower for three to four days continuously. You don't get a bathroom break. You're, you're stuck in your same clothes because, you know, it's unsafe to even move for a second from where the situation is. So... Uh, it's not dramatic uh, as you would see in Hollywood movies, but it's very raw. It is very real. And it is uh, very much something that we want the government to lead from front. But we have, like I mentioned earlier, the tip of the spear uh, does not get a ton of visibility. And that's how we would like to be. I, and I really appreciate you clarifying that it is in partnership with local law enforcement and that you're empowering them and showing them also a better yeah. way and, and facilitating that to be able to reach the scale and scope that you've reached as an organization. There's like, you've said it many times, you've used the word partners over and over and over again. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that is the core of what we do. <laughs> as Canadians, what can we do differently? You know, obviously we can support and we can donate and we can do the, I'm going to say quote unquote obvious things that a lot of us has done, but we live in a time when people are looking for purpose at a deeper level and they're looking to take personal yeah. action. And you and I joked before we got online, it's December, everyone's in a mood, <laughs> but now it's March and it's April and it's dreary and it's winter and we're not thinking about these things. What is it that we can do as individuals to maybe break part of this this supply chain or this, you know, being the end of that supply yeah. chain? I One thing that got me super excited about coming to Canada was when, okay, there was a reason I had to come to Canada, when my team had to choose between one rescue operation or the other. They were like, boss, we don't have uh, the resources to go for both. We'll have to choose one. That is a difficult choice for anyone to make and I, and, and I and I 
never wanted my team to have to deal with that crisis anymore. That was the primary reason when I decided to step away from what I was doing. And I was like, maybe it's time to take this outside of my place of comfort. Uh, but to do that in Canada was really um, encouraging because I've been here like a decade ago. I have been, I was at McGill University. I was in the room where a lot of debates around current issues were discussed. Whatever was discussed in those rooms were laws in three years. If there is one thing I absolutely admire about this country is that you can impact change. So that is the reason why I'm here. Uh, and, and whenever I think of what it is that, and you know, when, when my team members in India, they message once in a while and they're joking, oh, well, you're now in Canada. Um, so it looks like you can't, you know, you can't join us in all of these amazing things that are getting done. And I said, just wait and watch. Just wait and watch what this country with such a massive conscience, with such a massive heart to impact change can do. And that's exactly what I would love for your listeners to, uh, you know, know as what I see. You may not see what I see right now. If there is one place in this whole white planet which can take the leadership and say, enough. I would not want to wear, eat, or put anything on which has got the strains and blood of slavery. That can change the world. But understand more about the problem. 93% care about it. What is it that we can do to translate that care to action, which can actually ensure that we don't have to show up for those 40.3 million people anymore. Uh, and action can take several forms. Talk to your uh, local leaders. What is it? Why isn't the legislation being passed as yet? What is it that we can do to ensure that, you know, somebody is monitoring the entire supply chain? Are we going to be looking at import regulations? Uh, there are so many things that we can do. But the least, I would say, and probably the easiest right now, is to allow somebody to show up for those who are trapped in slavery right now. Um, and, and and a great way would be to come to IGM.ca and uh, find out. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. It's it's uh, you beat you beat me to the punchline. <laughs> Sorry, uh, you said so. You, no, no, not at all. I think we, you can't say it enough. IGM.ca, IGM.ca. <laughs> um, in case you didn't catch it, IGM.ca. Uh, you made a comment earlier about political will, mm -hmm. and I really appreciate the value of. You can't see the label when you're inside the bottle, and we as Canadians, we live in it. We live here every day you deciding from the outside and going, no, I'm coming here because of these reasons, because I see the ability. Are we on that path? Do you see that political will to create those laws that you spoke of that, you know, one year it's a conversation, three years later, it's, it's reality. Mm -hmm. I, I think if, like I mentioned earlier, we could very well be on that path. And if we get on that path, the tipping point is so close. And that's all I want. So, yes, I've been in conversations uh, with the government. I've been, uh, you know, engaging in so many powerful, powerful conversations. People care. People want to do something about it. It is taking time. There are probably great reasons for why it's taking time. But when it does happen, you know, history is getting ready to be written. Um, and, and, I, and I would love for each of you to know that. 
It's very, I feel a sense of, of Canadian pride swelling in, in, inside me because you're right. We are idealistic and we do have passions and we do have a lot of heart and not always knowing where, but primarily start by learning, understanding the problem. Like this is, and you know, you and I chatted very candidly before we got on. You, you know, you said to me, and I appreciate it. You don't blame anyone for not understanding that this is going on because it's not shiny. It's not something you want to learn about, but it's also not in our backyard, but yet we're playing a part. And I think that's very powerful to take that message home. And it's certainly, it's resonated for me. And the more I learn, the more the scope and scale of it, but that 2030, that's, I can see that that's not that far away. That's down the road. That's, that's a pretty shiny hope at the end of that tunnel right there. <laughs> yes. And then I find my coat. I will be so happy. I will be so <laughs> and you're out of a job with, and you're smiling the whole time. I, oh my gosh. There's nothing more than any of us would desire more. Anyone within the organization, we are all looking forward to that day and it's not too far. Oh, that's, it's a fantastic place to leave it. And you thank you so much for taking the time. Your passion is infectious. Your energy. I really enjoyed the conversation. IGM.ca, in case anyone has not heard me say it already. Large give now and uh, do do some reading and understand. And that's what I've done. And it can it can be sobering, it can be maddening, but ultimately there's hope at the at the end of that story. Uh, if anyone wants to reach out to you or get a hold of you personally, is there any way LinkedIn? Is there any anything that you want to throw All into the world for someone to I'm, reach out? I'm seek justice. I was that even before I joined IGM. Seek justice now. I think it's my um, uh, Instagram handle, Twitter. Oh, Seek Justice Now. Seek okay. Justice Now. Uh, I know so many handles and things, and they're all slightly different often. It's like, sorry, what, what? Seek Justice <laughs> LinkedIn now. is a great place. Um, oh, and the website is a fantastic place to reach me, info at ijm.ca. Please, please, please write. Fantastic. Especially if there are corporations, um, you know, wondering what it is that I can do to stay aligned with ESG. And um, let's have that chat. It would be great. Mm. A question just on pull on that thread a little bit. Have you worked with organizations where they one learn and want to understand first, but also expose this to their their teams and you know that sense of purpose? And for some organizations, I know they struggle because maybe what they do doesn't have the same level of purpose in terms of the problem that they solve in the world. That doesn't mean that's not a valuable contribution they make, but something like this can really resonate with employees and team members to get behind. Absolutely. I mean, there are a few organizations that have come forward to uh, talk about this. In fact, the hope. Hope is to have a venture council of sorts where organizations can come together and say, okay, now we are on it. There are 10 of us, 20 of us, um, and we are going to make sure that we are leading this movement to address this. We've had some incredible partners. I mean, like Dean Brody, he is, he's a country singer and he wants to lead the change. I mean, people like that uh, are the kind of partners who can move the needle um, to a place where Know, which what would have taken us 10, 15 years. So there are uh, organizations and individuals who are coming forward. I, I do think it, it, I believe this, that there is a trend of people willing to have difficult conversations. You know, Dean Brody is such a great example. I got to meet Dean a few weeks ago and just his passion. And this is something that he's personally mm -hmm. been involved in in one way or another for 10 yeah. years. And for an artist to come out with a topic like this, as I care about this, like the risk that he's willing to take, it shouldn't be a risk, but I understand, I know yeah. that it is in the world that we live in, uh, but he didn't, it, it doesn't matter to him because it's important. Yeah. That is an interesting trend that I think we're going to see more of, but you're, you're right. The amplitude that we can reach when you've got individuals that have a following that are clearly passionate about this and are willing to kind of put themselves out there, if you will, I don't want to use the word risk, put themselves out yeah. there to tell the story. That's a new thing. And I think that, that it's not people that are just feel gooding yeah. stuff. They're actually doing things that really matter that aren't fun to talk Absolutely. about and that can actually be a bit scary. Absolutely. Well, they are. Yeah. 
No, I think we're on a good trend to, to like, let's have real conversations about real things and real change. Exciting. <laughs> Anu, thank you. We can clearly keep talking for hours. <laughs> Anu, thank you so much for your time and your passion and your energy and the incredible work you do personally and, of course, at IGM.ca. <laughs> thank you so much. What an honor. <laughs> this is so fun. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thank you so much. 